Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Dr. Jared Cooper. Dr. Cooper and I had a great conversation with the ultimate goal of helping athletes overcome that fear of returning to sport after injury. But we did it in a more functional and objective way, a way that teaches athletes, clinicians, and coaches on how to test things to make sure an athlete is ready for return to sport. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this information highly valuable. So let's tune in. Jared Cooper, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Nice to see you. Yes, you as well. So I'm really excited for this podcast uh, based on the conversation we had previously. I think it's going to be really helpful for both athletes and clinicians alike for getting an athlete back to injury or back to sport after injury. Yeah, (laughs) hopefully not back to injury. (laughs) No, not back to injury. Let's avoid that one. But first and foremost, who are you? Tell us a little about you and what you do. Gotcha. Uh, so I know a lot of your listeners come from a lot of different places. So my, my current profession is I'm a doctor of physical therapy and I own a private practice in uh, New Jersey called Moment Physical Therapy, uh, which is right downstairs. And then on the second floor here is where we do a lot of our educational work. So I have an educational platform called Physio Secrets. And that's all about um, taking, essentially the, the, the target audience for that is, is the new grad coming out of school who really wants to make a difference in the world and who wants to make more money but they're also struggling to figure out the clinical side. And my thought is if I can get them to 10X their speed at which they get good at what they do, then they can start focusing on the money side faster. So it's really hard to make a really good income open your own practice when you're one year, two years out and you're, you're just overloaded with the clinical part and you're still trying to figure out how to treat people. So my goal is to accelerate that process, that learning process through a rapid learning uh, environment and get people really good at what they do so that they can then go and open a cash practice and feel comfortable, then focus on the business side and not have to worry about the clinical side, make the clinical side second nature. So that's like the, the two, two halves of my life. So I'm a family man. I have a, a cute little seven-year-old uh, who's nice and rambunctious and my beautiful wife uh, who helps out with the business a little bit. So it's a family affair. Very cool. Very cool. So we know when athletes are injured, especially when they get injured in Well, it happens on both ends, but I see it more commonly when it's a non-contact injury. Like it just happens that there's a big fear about how to return after injury or are they ready to return after injury? Um, So I I really want to dive into that because if we can get to the point that we trust our bodies to that they're healed and they know what to do again, we can overcome a lot of these fears. And so Um, I want you to dive into that a little bit about how do we know if someone's ready to return? How do we know that their body is ready for this again? Yeah. So I think the first thing is we have to understand what healing really is. Um, I think there's a misconception that healing is that uh, we injure something, we injure a tendon, a ligament, and it sort of like goes back to the way that it used to be. And that's, that's not exactly true. Uh, Healing is a combination of both restoration of original tissue through stem cells and things like that, but also scarring. And scar tissue is not as load tolerant as the original tissue is. And if you think about how every single injury on the planet occurs, it's all by the same exact formula, which is that when injury occurs when load exceeds load capacity. And that's true for every single injury. If we're talking about a paper cut, it's the same exact thing. 
if the load of the edge of the paper exceeds the tensile strength of your skin, you get a paper cut. If you get hit with a baseball bat, if the velocity and load of the baseball bat, the bending force exceeds <laughs> the load capacity of your femur, like if you were in a Nancy Kerrigan incident, for those of you who remember that, right? <laughs> then you will have a broken leg. If the load capacity is exceeded by an ankle stiff, the load of your ATFL is exceeded by the inversion force and torque, you'll have an ankle sprain. So all injury occurs when load exceeds load capacity. And you can think about that, the way I think about it, is that our tissues have an internal load meter. And you can think about the load meters having four colors, green, yellow, orange, and red. When the load that's exerted on our human tissues in the green zone, we're cool. Everything feels good. It all feels healthy. There's no pain. Everything's functioning well. Um, when it starts to get into the yellow zone, that's where we actually start getting this warning pain. Now, that doesn't mean tissue injury is occurring. It's just it's, it's a, what I call like a shot at the bow. It's warning pain. Um, and that warning pain is designed, it's evolutionarily designed to let us know that we're getting close to load capacity. And load capacity occurs at the threshold between yellow and orange. You can think about that like a threshold point. Once you get past that load capacity, you get into the orange zone, that's where microtrauma occurs. And if we get into the red zone, that's where macrotrauma occurs. So when we're talking about an athlete's actually been injured, not just an athlete has pain, because they could still be operating in that yellow zone where they're just getting shots of warning pain saying, listen, you are getting really close to load capacity. And you can actually feel these zones pretty easily in your own self. If you just like take your finger, if you take your pinky, and you just move it around a little bit, you're moving it in the green zone, everything's cool. You're like, oh man, that feels really good. You go a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further, you'll hit the yellow zone where you'll actually start to get pain in your pinky, right? But if you let it go, no injury has occurred. Your pinky still feels completely fine. If you go a little bit further, you'll actually get a sprain in the ligament. And then if you go a little bit further than that, you might actually rupture the ligament. So it's very easy to understand and feel those things. So we're going to say that, the, that tissue injury, when our athlete is actually quote unquote injured, they've gone past the load capacity of the tissue. And they've now entered either the orange zone, which is going to be your micro traumas, your cumulative traumas, your overuse injuries, things like that, or your macro traumas, which are going to be like your non-contact ACL ruptures and things like that, right? So the real question is, how do I know when my load capacity has returned? Because if you think about it, if all injury is load exceeding load capacity, then the only way to get an athlete back and have them feel confident is if they know and you as the coach and PT know that you've restored the load capacity back to the tissue and with a buffer so that you're not just getting them maybe back to where they were, but you want to create a bulletproof athlete. So you want to get it just a bit beyond that. And that's ultimately how you, how you increase confidence is you test load capacity. And every time an athlete passes a load capacity test, their confidence goes up because it didn't hurt. They did well. They got a passing grade. They're like, okay. It's kind of like if you're in school, you know, like where I, my, my son was in a Kumon, which is like one of these like tutoring programs for kids. And one of the things they do with math and, and English is that they'll give them stuff that they know that they can do easily up in the beginning. And every time the kid like gets an A and like, oh my God, yes, this is great. This is great. They're getting check pluses and all that. Their confidence goes up and it's because of the feedback they're getting because they're passing, they're passing, they're passing, they're passing. So the same thing with an athlete. How do you get over fear as an athlete? You have to pass. 
You have to pass over and over and over by tackling smaller capacity tests first, then medium capacity tests, then higher capacity tests. And the mentality of the athlete goes, well, if I could do this, then I can do this. And if I could do this, I could do this. I mean, it's a little bit like Spartan racing, right? If you can get through the race, you can do anything. <laughs> You're ready to go for life. <laughs> but that's basically, in my eyes, you know, you could, you could try to psychologize it and you could try to like convince somebody and talk to them and give them encouragement. But the, I think you have to show them how to do it. And, and the way that you do that is through this process. So what does this testing process look like to you? So we can look at this in terms of a couple, a couple of different levels. So to understand the testing process, you have to understand the idea of prerequisites. So if you can think about like, you remember like when we were, we, we all, well, most of your listeners probably at this point in time are college or beyond, right? But even in high school, right? You have this idea of prerequisites. And the idea behind a prerequisite is that if you want to take the 301 level course, you have to first take the 201 and before that the 101, right? And if you skip the 101 and you sneak into the 201 or the 301, the chances are you're going to fail. And the only way to pass is to cheat. Now in movement, that cheating is compensation. So the 301, the 301 task in movement is the activity the person needs to do. So that's going to be whatever sport they're, they're in, right? So if they're a football player, a soccer player, if they're a hockey player, if we're talking about the non-athlete and it's grandma, it's picking up the grandkids, carrying the groceries, that's her 301 task. If you're talking about mom, it's maybe cleaning the house, dishes, driving the car, you know, like uh, going out and playing with the, the kids or whatever, whatever your task is, that's your 301. Athlete or non-athlete, it's the same. The 201 is the movement patterns that make up the 301 task. So for example, if we're talking about, let's say a basketball player, you know they have to run, cut, jump. Those are all movement patterns that you can look at independently of the actual task itself. And those can actually be tested independently as well. And then when you go one level before that, the question then becomes, okay, if we're testing the movement patterns, what are the 101 attributes that make up the pattern? So a great example of this is like, I work with a lot of runners. So we'll take a runner. We'll do a 301 analysis. How do we do that? We have to watch him run. So we'll take him outside. We'll do slow motion video. We'll watch him run front, side, back. We'll slow it down and we'll analyze the actual running stride itself. That's a 301 analysis. The 201 analysis that we like to use first and foremost with runners is a single leg squat. Because running, right, at its, at its core is a single leg activity over and over and over. If they can't pass the 201 assessment called the single leg squat, they sure as heck ain't going to be able to run right. It's impossible because you have to pass the prerequisite first. So then the question is, what's the prerequisite to the single leg squat? Well, you have to have the attributes that make up a single leg squat. You have to have ankle dorsiflexion. You have to have some degree of hip flexion. That's on the mobility side. On the stability side, you have to have some degree of arch support, which is your, your foot intrinsics, your posterior tibialis strength, and the ability to stabilize your hip and pelvis. So that's going to be gluteus medius strength, a little minimus strength, and core, right? So we can test those attributes on the table. We can test them in isolation one at a time. Because if they fail the 201, we don't know which attribute they don't have. Because the compensation can look similar between multiple problems. For example, let's just say somebody does a single leg squat and you see medial knee collapse. We don't know by watching the medial knee collapse what's causing it. 
Do they have a structural problem like femoral antiversion? Do they have a tibial retrotorsion? Do they have a forefoot varus deformity, which are all structural issues? Do they have a weak gluteus medius? Do they have poor motor control? Do they have a, a foot that they can't control? We can sort of intuit a little bit and make our best guess, but unless we put them on the table and isolate the 101 components, then we don't know. So when you say, well, what does return to sport testing look like? You have to look at it from each of those levels. You have to look at it from, can the person pass the 101 assessments on the table? Can they pass the 201 pattern, the movement pattern that makes up the 301? And can they show me that they can actually perform the actual task properly without compensation or pain? So that's how I analyze pretty much everything, but return to sport is, is analyzed exactly the same way. Is you're looking at 101, 201, and 301, and where are they at each of those levels? I love how you break that down because it's really, one, it just makes so much sense, but two, it's really how I really look at things the same way. Like what's your big picture and then what's your smaller picture of all the minute little tasks that need to happen with the body to get it to that point. So I love that example. And I also love it because my pet peeve of so many clinicians is they don't look at a runner run and they don't right. train single leg task. And it's really frustrating to me. So I'm loving that you use that example here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's different, as you know, there's different criteria you look at at each, at each stage, right? And I think that the hardest, the hardest one to assess is the 301 because you have to have a really good familiarity with the actual task itself. Mm -hmm. We've all picked stuff up off the floor. We've all pushed open a door. We've all carried groceries. We haven't all hurled a, hurled a lacrosse stick or, <laughs> or done you know, a, a pole vault or we've gone on the pommel horse. I mean, I myself have never pole vaulted or pommel horsed <laughs> and I have minimal exposure to a lacrosse stick. So it, it's very hard to analyze 301 tasks when you're working with athletes that are outside of the movement domain that you yourself are familiar with. That doesn't mean you have to do the sport but you have to have done enough movement analysis or really it's called task analysis to know what's in the sport. I'm a mediocre runner, but I can still work with high level runners because I really understand the patterns of a runner. And I think a lot of therapists get a little bit apprehensive about doing those kinds of assessments. They don't feel qualified to do it. The reality is you don't get magically qualified. You have to actually go and study the sport and the patterns in that sport to qualify yourself. And you have to analyze the sport. You have to do your task analysis by looking at the mobility demands and the stability demands and literally writing them down. Just like you'd write down the mobility demands of a single leg squat and the stability demands of a single leg squat. You have to look at what the athlete is doing. And if you don't have access to your own experience or to a, a friend who's doing it, you have to look at tapes or video and use YouTube and go, okay, I'm going to sit for a couple hours. I'm going to watch what someone looks like on a pommel horse and figure out how much hip flexion do they need? You know, how much plantar flexion do they need? What kind of core strength do they need? What kind of ridiculous hip flexor strength do they need to hold their legs out? What kind of shoulder stability do they need? And understand what's in that task, what transitions are in that task, and especially understanding the transition points when the movement goes from an eccentric to a concentric phase, and you have to decelerate something and then reaccelerate it. That's usually where the breakdown occurs. So finding those transition points and doing a righteous task analysis, I think, is really the first component before you can start or begin to figure out what the RTS or return to sport criteria is. Very cool. When we talk about movement patterns, I'm curious on 
kind of where not leeway is, but at what point when we're still dealing with an athlete that maybe their motion and strength isn't fully back. So they have some faulty movement patterns. At what point are you okay with them returning to sport? And at what point, like, what's your limit of like, no, you're not ready. You don't have enough um, proper movement here versus you are ready, but we still need to work on things. Yeah, that's an awesome question. I think that's probably one of the questions that a lot of coaches and therapists uh, struggle with quite a bit. Um, so first and foremost, return to sport criteria and DC criteria are not the same. To, an athlete should always go to back to sport before their discharge. I don't like the word discharge, but if we're going to use it, but before they're discharged from physical therapy, they, they should be back in their sport. So RTS happens before DC happens. And that's usually because there's some sort of external pressure. I mean, an athlete is trying to get back to their sport as fast as possible. So we can look at those two things separately and say, what are the return to sport criteria? And then even after they return to sport, what else do you have to do before you actually discharge them from therapy? We know, I've worked with pro athletes. I mean, the Jets are, are right here. And we know that when we work with athletes, they are the most imbalanced people on the face of the earth. So if we wait to balance their system and correct every single imbalance that they have to return to sport. We'd have to pull half of the, half of the NFL out right now to do that, which is ridiculous. A lot of the adaptations that these athletes have are conducive to their sport. They're conducive. A tennis player has got a, a forearm on their swing side. That's three times the size of their non-swing side. A baseball player is going to have a ton more external rotation on their throwing arm. A lot of these adaptations, which is what they are, are sport-specific adaptations, and they're necessary in many ways for the athlete to compete. This is why, by the way, you can't take an athlete who's really good at one sport and expect them to necessarily do well at another. A basketball player who's tall with a really short heel cord that can dunk probably doesn't do very well in a deep squat, right? Because they don't necessarily have the dorsiflexion for it. That adaptation serves them only in the context at which they're performing, but not in another context, right? So with, with that in mind, we need to be analyzing these athletes, first of all, with the sport in mind, right? Wait, what was the original question you asked? <laughs> I want to make sure I get back to it. <laughs> um, let's see if I can remember. Oh, yeah. Um, Return to sport of... versus discharge. That's right. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, as far as like where, where do you draw the line for faulty movement of, yes, they're faulty, but they can return versus right. not ready to return yet? Right, right, right. So I think the question then becomes which is where I was going with this whole thing, was the faulty movement pattern prior to the injury or not? In other words, did they have the imbalance prior to the injury? And can you identify that imbalance as being conducive or an adaptation towards the sport? Or was it acquired due to the injury? Or did they get injured because of the imbalance? If you can't tell the story of cause and figure out whether or not the imbalance actually caused the injury, it may actually be an imbalance that is conducive to the sport and you probably shouldn't attempt to go fix it. You can't really use normative values with athletes because the demand on them is so much beyond the, the, the normative comparison that we normally use. So the first thing that I look at is going to be, of course, like symmetry is right versus left. We know that an athlete needs to have about less than 10% of an asymmetry to reduce the risk of injury. Like that's number one. The second thing is we're going to look at their pre-sport performance versus their post-injury or their pre-injury performance versus their post-injury performance. And whatever detriment or imbalance has occurred because of that, those are imbalances we need to fix. Classic example is 
an ACL tear. We know after an ACL tear that the quad is going to atrophy like crazy. That quad was obviously fine before the injury. Now we have a quad index whereby our strong side's at 100% and our, and our post-ACL side is at like 40%. That is an imbalance that must get closer to 90% before we actually let that athlete return. Conversely, if you look at an athlete and they only have eight degrees of dorsiflexion as opposed to the necessary 10 in open chain, and in closed chain, they've got 25 as opposed to 45, but they're a runner and they have no need to squat, that kind of imbalance is probably okay and is probably not something that we need to correct, certainly not before we return them to sports. You have to really figure out whether the imbalance that you're seeing somehow contributed to the injury or not, and whether it's a normal adaptation to the sport or not. And then you can decide whether it needs to get corrected before you return them to the sport or you return them to the sport and consider working on it after, before discharge. And that's really what's in that window. Return to sports here, discharges here. In the window between the two, that's where you're correcting all the imbalances that you think may be a problem, but you're not sure. You have to correct the imbalances that you know are a problem before return to sport, like things like a quad power problem or a rotator cuff power problem. And those things just have to be corrected first. Hope that answered the question. Yeah, great explanation on that. So we've talked about prerequisites. We've talked about these imbalances. Are there any other more specific tests and measures that need to be done? And I know it's very sport dependent at times, but just as a general, are there any other things that we need to be looking at as a coach or clinician before this athlete returns to sport? Right. So... I think that the, the one thing that, that people don't understand is that you need a key performance indicator at all three levels, right? You're dealing with the tissue and you're dealing with the athlete. And at the 101 tissue level, you have to have a key performance indicator associated with the 101 level. A good example of that would be if you had an ankle sprain, you might do an inversion stress test or a tailor tilt to find out whether or not that ATFL still produces pain on inversion. That is a very simple tissue test, tissue integrity test that they need to pass because if they don't pass it and there's still pain, if you look at that load meter, we know they haven't made it back to the green zone yet because pain should not be produced from healthy tissue. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So once we go beyond that, then we get into 101. That's the passive tissue. Then you have the active tissue. So the active tissue would be, or active tissue test would be something like how many calf raises can the person do? You're still isolated down to the actual tissue, but now you're talking about calf atrophy that occurred as a result of the ankle sprain. So it's a sequelae, but it's still related to the injury. And we're testing it at the 101 level. Do they have the ability to perform 25 single leg calf raises? And is it the same on the other side? So for example, we just had a a patient who on one side could perform six single leg calf raises on the other, they could perform 17. That's about a 30% calf on that side. And we'll use these index measurements, right versus left, to try to figure that out. Now, I wrote down a couple of different ways of looking at that output measurement to kind of like break this down a little bit further, right? So number one, you can look at the strength output. So the strength output, you you do something like, like a load max. So it's like three rep max, five rep max, is what is the actual strength output of the muscle? So if we're looking at a quad, on an on a, uh, ACL, and if I stuck them in an open chain knee extension machine, which is not functional, but you have to remember that's not what we're actually testing. We're just testing the quad muscle output. Now, the reason it's important to test it in isolation 
is because athletes are the best compensators on the planet. An athlete can hide a compensation better than anybody else. So if you just rely on a single leg squat, they could upregulate their calf activity and their glute activity and show you what looks to be a decent single leg squat, but they're really not using that quad. They're using the stuff above and the stuff below. They're really good at hiding compensation because their motor control is up here. People with really crappy motor control, they have a really hard time hiding compensation. The better the athlete, the better they can hide it. So we've got to isolate the quad. So let's just say towards the end of rehab, you did a quad power output test and you look, we wanted to look at strength. What you would look at is like a one rep max, three rep max, five rep max, whatever you think was, was applicable for your athlete, whatever was appropriate, depending on where they are. You can look at power output by doing something like an AMRAP, right? As many reps as possible, given a fixed load in a fixed time constraint, and, or you could add the time constraint or not. So you could do as many reps as possible and no time constraint, which will give you an endurance measurement, right? How many of these can you do in a row before you fry? Let's say you can do 35. That's a measure of muscle endurance. Or how many of these can you do in a fixed amount of time, like in a minute, which would assess power output. And, and those are the sort of ways you look at strength, power, and endurance output on the 101 level, isolating a specific tissue. So you test it passively by stressing the tissue, and you test it actively by looking at what's the output. Now, if it's a ligament injury, then we're always going to look at tension tests on the ligament. If it's a tendon injury, we're going to look at tension tests, but then we also want to test the muscle that attaches to that tendon, obviously, to see how well the output is. Let's go up a level to the 201, right? To the 201, you have to select a movement pattern that is consistent with the pattern that the athlete has to perform in their activity. It has to be reverse engineered. You, you can't pick a pattern that is in the literature, but irrelevant to what your athlete actually has to do out in the real world. It has to be relevant. I'm not gonna take a Spartan athlete and do a triple hop for distance. It's, it's not relevant to what a Spartan athlete needs to do. Is it a good test? Yes. Is it a valid test? Yes. Is it a reliable test? Yes. Is it a relevant test? No. So, so you have to reverse engineer your, your 201 assessments based upon the 301 task or sport that that person is involved in. It needs to be athlete specific, injury specific, and sport specific. And so people always talk about sport specific testing, but they forget that they also need to be doing injury specific testing and athlete specific. Those three components make up a righteous test and you should measure your tests against those three questions. Is this specific to the athlete? Is this specific to the sport? And is this specific to the injury? And if you can say yes to all three for your 101, 201, and 301 assessments, you've put together a righteous return to sport criteria. So I can't say this test is better than this test because it has to be reverse engineered from the athlete and where they're at. Makes complete sense there. As an athlete is returning to sport, what do, as a clinician, what needs to be communicated to the coach and the athlete about that return? Okay. So... I like to keep it simple. Coaches don't want to hear all the jargon. They don't want to hear our like physio babble about naming structures and things. So I like to basically communicate to a coach a single number. 
And you can think about this like the critical number, which is between zero, which is day of injury, and 100%, where's the athlete? Because remember, they're going back before they're at 100%. That sounds crazy, but an athlete is almost never at 100% when they return to sport. You'd like to get them above 90%, because that's sort of where the cutoff is about where injuries start to occur. But it, they're very rarely back to 100%. And that is simply because of the pressures to return to sport. If we had all the time in the world with other athletes, yeah, we'd like to get them back to 100%, maybe even 110%. But you want to know what? When little Timmy's got a game on Saturday that makes a difference between whether or not he gets a college scholarship or not, if he's 92%, he's going to play, right? So there's, there's that, that, that's an important thing to understand is that, that we have to be a, have a, give a little bit of leeway to these athletes. They understand there's risks involved. And they're taking on some of those risks. And some of those risks mean that they're going to be going back to sport even if they're not 100%. So I'd like to, to communicate that one number to the coach. Where are they? Okay, I would call the athletes at 95% right now. They're not at 100%. The athletes at, at 86%, but I'm letting them play because this is an important game. If the coach knows that, then they know on their end, great, I'm going to drive the athlete to 86% of their capacity. Coaches know what an athlete can do. So they can modulate how hard they work the athlete based upon that single number. The second thing that they need that a therapist or athletic trainer needs to communicate to the, to the coach is what not to do. And it's almost like when we get scripts from physicians after surgery and they give us those protocols with a laundry list of things to do. And I basically ignore, <laughs> hope there's no physicians listening, but I ignore most of them. <laughs> And I look for the precautions, right? What do they not want me to do? Do not externally rotate the shoulder past 45 degrees. Got it. Do not flex and internally rotate the hip. Got it. Because I know that those, that those like progressions are written for the general population. And I'm not treating the general population. I'm treating Sally. I'm treating the one person in front of me. So I want to know what the precautions are as a rehab expert. The coach should know what not to do. Don't give them 9 million instructions on what they should do. Just give them the one or two things they have to remember what not to do with the athlete. The third thing is gradate the progression. So all you have to tell the coach is get them back and just say slow, medium, or fast. You can get them back fast. They're good to go. Get them back at a medium pace. Get them back at a slow pace. They're still struggling a little bit. So I think just keeping it super simple. And lastly, the athlete should always be returning to play with a corrective exercise program. That is so key. And they have to have it on paper so that when they go to practice or they go to work out in the weight room with the team, they, they can show up 15 minutes early and say, look, coach, I got to get through this corrective exercise program as part of my rehab. Even though I'm good to go back, I'm, like I said, I'm still working on these imbalances. So those are the four things. The critical number, what percentage better are they out of 100? What are the precautions? In other words, what not to do? What's the progression, slow, medium, or fast? And what's the corrective exercise strategy that they need in order to keep working on imbalances as they go back to the sport? Very cool. In reverse of that, what should the coach or the athlete be asking the therapist before they get back out there? So I think, I think the, coach, the coaches need to know to ask for those four things, right? They need to be asking the same questions that the therapist should be telling them is where's my athlete? How fast can I push them? What shouldn't I do? And what else should they do in the weight room in order to stay balanced? But even more importantly, those four things is the coach needs to know what to look for. Because a lot of the times, you know, the, the coaches know that when someone's getting back, they know to ask for pain. They know to say, hey, does that hurt? Does that hurt? All right, how's that knee? How's that knee doing? 
right? They know to ask that question. The problem is that the athlete is a little bit of a liar sometimes <laughs> because they don't want anybody to know they hurt. And that's, that's okay. We know that. I don't tell everybody I hurt when I hurt. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How's the knee? It's good, right? <laughs> that's what athletes say. Why? They don't want to get pulled again. I got a guy right now who had to go back to running because he was going into the basic training to get into the army. And he lied to all of the upper ranks about his shin splints because he knows if he told them about it, they'd pull him out and they'd put him in the, you know, whatever, you know, they, they would essentially put him on the DL list, right? And the athletes are not always going to tell the truth and that's okay, but we need to be aware that athletes might underplay and they do it for the good of their own. Uh, uh, they do it for good because they want to play. They want to. They want to produce. They don't want to be the guy who's not who's on the sidelines, not helping out. They're doing it for good reasons. But coaches need to understand that an athlete's not always going to be completely transparent about what something feels like. So the coach needs to look out for other things. And we know signs precede symptoms. We know that we can test a sign before we actually get a symptom. We know that we can assess high blood pressure or high cholesterol before someone gets chest pain. We know that we can see an asymmetry in the squat or we can see limping in somebody's run, even if it doesn't hurt. So we have to educate our coaches to know how to look for signs of compensation and movement. And that might, and the simplest thing is just look, if it doesn't look right, or it looks asymmetric, asymmetric, if you see limping, if you see the athlete asymmetrically weight shifting over to one side during a squat, then their chances are that there's something that is still going on. That's a sign. And if, even if the coach doesn't know what to do about it right in that moment, they might say to the athlete, does that hurt? And then look at the athlete's eyes really closely for the little white lie that's about to come. <laughs> and, and if the athlete hesitates even for the slightest second, even for just a second, then there's a good chance that, that something is going on. Even if they wouldn't describe it as pain, it just doesn't feel right. A lot of times things just don't feel right, even though they don't hurt. And so if an athlete responds very, very quickly, oh yeah, no, no, I am good, I am good. You know, it's okay. If they, if they hesitate for just one second, if they have to think about it, then there's, there's, they're kind of in the mind weighing the emotion of, should I disclose this information or not? And what kind of impact is that going to have on me as an athlete? So I think coaches need to understand that um, they need to look for signs first. And when they're asking about symptoms, they need to look for hesitation in the answer. And if there is hesitation and they are seeing some signs, they don't necessarily have to pull the athlete out of competition, but they may want to send the athlete in for a reeval and just have the athletic trainer or the PT or whoever's in charge of that. Just do a screen on them. Go back to the 301, assess the 301. If something on 301, put them in the 201. If the 201 don't look right, put them back on the table and reassess the one-on-one. Now, maybe the most important question from this entire interview, what are the signs that an athlete returned too early after injury? Yeah. So I think we touched on some of them, which is you're going to start to see signs in the, in, in the, in the patterns, which means you're going to see, well, first of all, if there's a decrease in performance. So if you're looking at a thrower, do they have their velocity back? right? If they don't have their velocity back, did you get them back too early? You know, did you give them the attributes they needed to have the velocity, right? So that's number one. The second one is, and, and most importantly is, are you seeing compensation in the pattern? 
Whereas before they were able to do it this way, now they have to do it this way. So a good example, if you look at Tiger Woods, if you analyze Tiger Woods swing before or after his lumbar fusion, right? And you go, okay, if I don't know anything about golf, I can't tell. But if you know about golf and you understand the 301, you can look at it and go, I see a difference in the movement pattern before and after. And then the third thing, and most importantly, is pain. Pain is going to tell us where we are in the load meter. Now, when you're progressing an athlete, there's, kind of, there's a couple of different kinds of pain. So I want to just touch on this real briefly because I think it's important, which is pain is not all the same. When you go and you get a deep tissue massage and it hurts so good, that is not the same thing as when you sprain your ankle and it hurts. Like that's not the same pain. First of all, hurt so good pain is in the yellow zone. If I'm doing squats and my quads are on fire, they're in the yellow zone. I'm cool. The quads are going to be just fine, right? We worry about when they get into the orange zone. Once you actually get microtrauma to the tissue, the sensation of pain changes and the behavior of pain changes. So I break pain down. I do this in my book as well. In the Physio Frameworks book, there's a whole section on this because of how important it is to understanding how to progress people. And I talk a lot about it in, in the Physio Secrets platform and all the work that I do because of how important it is to understand the different kinds of pain. So the first one is that you've got online and offline pain. Online is going to be the thing hurts while it's happening. Offline is going to be the thing hurts later on. So inflammation lives in the offline department, right? If it doesn't hurt now, but it hurts later, the only thing that's going to cause that is tissue damage or inflammation. Then you've got lingering and non-lingering pain. Lingering pain is it hurts now, and the moment you stop the activity, it still hurts and it goes on hurting for an hour or two. Non-lingering pain is it hurts when you're doing it, but it goes away immediately upon cessation. So what you're looking for in the athlete, the sign that you didn't go back too early, if you do have pain, it's online non-lingering. It hurts a little bit while you do the activity, but the moment you're done, the pain is gone. That's online. It happens when you're doing it and it's non-lingering. So you're cool. So if you're getting back and you're like, okay, I want to work through some of this discomfort. I want to get back to squats. My knee is not quite right, but I want to try to get back to squatting. I'm sure you've had this thought yourself, right? Where you've tweaked something, right? <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. And you're like, okay, I know I I'm not a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not a hundred percent, but I want to try it. I want to test the water. You do the activity. It produces a little pain. You ask yourself, is this online or offline lingering or non-lingering? When you're done, if that pain goes away, it was online non-lingering pain. You're cool. I always think of that from uh, Pulp Fiction. You're cool, honey bunny. Remember that? <laughs> you're cool. If you get lingering pain, which means the moment you're done with the workout and your shoulder is now sore for three hours, you are starting to reignite an inflammatory process or you are aggravating tissue that is not healed, and you are potentially producing more microtrauma. If you get offline lingering pain, which means it hurts a couple hours later, then it hurts all night into the next day, you have excited an inflammatory process. So what we look at is, did they go back too early? If they have pain, it's, us, it's, you know, it's one indicator. If it's online non-lingering, we'll let the person push through it a little bit. If it's offline, lingering pain, or if it's online lingering pain, 
we start to get a little bit skittish and go, are we inflaming this tissue? Are we producing more micro trauma to the tissue? Did we, did we, and again, looking at that load, load capacity, are we pushing that load too close to capacity or beyond capacity such that we are not allowing this tissue to heal? And if that's true, do we need to decrease the load for a little bit longer and allow that tissue to heal a little bit more before we start to reload it to push up the capacity? And that's ultimately the, what's going on in your mind as a coach, what's going on in your mind as a trainer, as a therapist, is what's the load capacity? Can I push it up? How fast can I push it up? Which is very dependent on the athlete, their prior injury history, their mindset, their overall health, their sleep quality, and all of the other holistic factors that you talk about in your podcast. Those things are all so important, and they're going to help you to understand how fast you can push that load capacity up. And pain and pain behavior is the indicator about where your tissue is and how it's doing with, relationship to, with, re, with relation to the load capacity, which ultimately is what you should care about most, both at the tissue level and the load capacity at the athlete level to kind of tie it all together. I really love that explanation. It's a really easy way for the athlete to be able to tell, like, is this something I should be pushing right now or is it something I should back off? So that's super helpful. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Any final thoughts that come to mind that we have not covered yet that are super important for an athlete, clinician, or coach to know? I think the only final thing I would say is that it's, I, I, I'm really an advocate of a team approach and of a continuum of care approach. And that we as therapists really need to understand the coach's mindset, what the coach is doing. And the coach needs to really understand what we're doing on the therapist level with the trainer in between. And the, the athlete isn't really going from one place and then departing and going to the next. They're living on the spectrum all the time. Pro athletes are constantly being seen by trainers and they're constantly being referred for therapy. They're in and out of therapy, whether they're injured or not. They're constantly moving back and forth. Yet at the amateur level, especially at the teen level, it's almost like we just, it's, it's discongruous. We've separated the two. They're either playing or they're out. They're out or they're playing. But in reality, we need to bridge the gap between all those things. We need to understand the therapist needs to be talking to the trainer. And the therapist needs to be talking to the coach. And the trainer needs to be talking to the therapist and the coach. And the coach needs to be talking to the therapist. Everybody needs to be on the same page. The athlete needs to live on a continuum all the time. No athlete gets through their career uninjured. I mean, I, I, I've, oh, I don't know if I've ever met one. I don't know that you've ever met one. Maybe one exists out there, but it's a unicorn. Most <laughs> athletes are thoroughbred horses. They're all going to get injured at some point in time. They're all going to tweak something. And most athletes are injured all the time. <laughs> like most athletes, something hurts all the time. And I say injured, I'm using the term loosely. Something hurts all the time, right? It's a little shoulder thing. It's a little hip thing. And so that you have to understand that the, con the continuum of care between rehab, fitness, and performance, they're not distinct things. And therapists need to get good at fitness and performance. And the performance folks, while it's outside of their scope to do rehab, need to at least understand the things that we're talking about, load capacity, imbalances, prerequisites. This is the terminology that trainers should be obsessing about understanding rather than looking at the newest, hottest thing on, on Instagram or what's, oh, it's a really cool exercise. I'll try that. That's all BS. That stuff is easy to absorb. It's just exercises. That's not where the gold is. The gold is understanding these concepts and then layering exercises on top of them. Going, okay, now I understand the pattern. Now I understand 
what the 301, 201, 101 spectrum looks like. Now I'm going to pick an exercise. I'm not going to pick an exercise because someone said it was good for golf or it was good for this, it was good for that. I'm going to understand the athlete, the sport, the position, and the injury. Understand where, that, where they are in the continuum of care. And I'm going to select an exercise from a catalog that I have. The, see, Instagram is just a catalog. It isn't a decision maker, right? And so if we understand what decisions we need to make, then we can select an exercise that plugs in perfectly to where they are from that rehab fitness performance spectrum. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If someone has any further questions or wants to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, yeah. So physiosecrets.com is the hub. That's physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O, secrets.com. Everything's there. The podcast is there, the Physio Mission podcast, which you are an amazing guest on. And the, uh, the blog is there, all the free stuff, the courses are there. And link to the uh, Facebook group, which is uh, Physio Secrets, Clinical Mastery Made Simple, which is a Facebook group where we drop exclusive content on uh, treatment and training and stuff like that. So, but if you want to find anything, physiosecrets.com, you can link to every other thing that I have from there. You can also opt in for early release of the book, the physio frameworks. So that should be coming out. I was shooting for winter. Winter is coming, but it's here already. So <laughs> hopefully be, hopefully be for spring. I'm shooting for spring now. Writing a book is very hard. So <laughs> we're plugging through it, but it should be out soon. Awesome. Well, Jared Cooper, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you getting on here and talking with me. Absolutely. Brianne. It was a pleasure being a guest. Thanks so much. And that concludes this week's episode of Highly Functional. If you enjoyed it and found the information helpful, I invite you to head over to Facebook and join my group, Obstacle Course Racing Athlete Health and Performance, where you can both join your OCR tribe as well as find very helpful, useful information on how to become a more dominant racer, a more resilient racer, and truly race at your peak performance. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional.